0: Joel chapter 2, verse 1. These are God's words. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. May the Lord add a blessing to the readers here as doers of his infallible Holy word, you may be seated. When COVID was in full effect um, in in Vicksburg, I knew that we were um, in a season where it was fluctuating or trending up or in a season where it was fluctuating or trending down based on the amount of sirens that I heard around my neighborhood. Um, I live less than five minutes away from the lighthouse, um, right up the street here off of, uh, off of Washington. Oh, I'm sorry, off of Cherry, um, Glenwood Circle. And so I'm in a good place, in a good, a good spot to hear sirens from all locations, Cherry Street, Mission 66, etc. And literally I could just listen to the amount of sirens that I would hear during the day, because of course at that that time I was also working from home. And so during the day, just based on the number of sirens I heard, I knew whether or not we were trending up or down and I could literally hear the sirens. And then a week later, go back and look at the stats from Warren County and certainly we would be trending up in terms of the amount of COVID cases and the severe COVID cases. There's something to be said about alarms and sirens. Passage itself, this passage that we're reading this morning begins with one. It gives us an alarm, an alarm for a nation. And when we hear alarms, we normally think that there is danger. And in this case, we would be right. There is danger that is coming. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. This, this trumpet is otherwise known as a shofar, which is basically a ram's horn. And it was used during ancient times to announce major events. For example, it was said that during the Day of Atonement in the Jubilee year, the horn, the ram's horn, the shofar, would be blown in order to highlight the release of slaves in debt. You know, that was part of uh, Old Testament custom, that every so many years, they would release slaves and they would release debt Oh. And the horn would signify that that moment had arrived. So sometimes the sound was, in, was indeed a pleasant one. But here in this moment, the sound would signal something else entirely. The, the horn is sounded twice in this chapter. And we're walking through the major prophets um, um, through, throughout the, the last several weeks. And now, of course, we find ourselves in the book of Joel. And in the book of Joel in chapter 2, the horn is sounded twice. And both times it comes really kind of unexpected and abrupt, but no less necessary. The first sounding of the horn we find in verse 1 that we just read. And, And its purpose is a purpose of warning. It is designed and sounded to tell us that terror is coming. Now in ancient days there would be a in the city, there would be a signed watchmen who would be near the city gates and where, wherever the city was fortified, they would be near that and they would look out and watch and post and stand guard at day and at night in order to see or sight danger. And if they sighted danger or saw danger, then they would blow the horn to sound the alarm for the rest of the city to gear up because trouble was close. So here in chapter two, verse one, the Lord is calling for the the same type of action, sound the alarm for a threat is approaching. But this threat isn't like any other threat because this threat is the Lord himself that is drawing near to the people, bearing down on the nation. The Lord is bringing impending doom. Now this is a staggering picture because here we see the Lord playing both the (laughs) watchman and playing the terror that the watchman is calling out. He is coming to a city, bringing his judgment, but it is not without a compassionate warning from him as well. You see, this is God's... Mercy and grace and love on display, even when faced with disobedience from his people, waywardness from his people, this is God's love. God is infinitely holy. He is bringing judgment against unrighteousness, but he is also infinitely merciful and infinitely loving, and he is providing us, even in judgment, a warning and an opportunity to turn or to avoid his wrath. So what's, coming, what's, coming, what's actually coming the way of the people here? What is the Lord actually bringing in judgment? Well, it's actually kind of hard to say. Some theologians believe that this is two separate seasons of judgment. In, in chapter 1, we talked about locusts and these, these destroying locusts and, the, and these hopping locusts that are coming and that are, and that are destroying the crops and destroying the ability for animals to eat and obviously destroying the ability for us to eat or people to eat and, for, and to dine. And so there are some theologians that believe that chapter one was a season of judgment with locusts, but chapter two is an entirely different season of uh, judgment with locusts. So there's a past, and then there's a future season. And then there are some theologians that believe this is just the same season, that this is just a story that's continued, and it's just told twice, basically. Chapter one is told once, but it's the same story. Chapter two is told again, but it's the same story. And then there's some theologians that don't even believe that chapter two is about locusts. That chapter two is actually about a nation. And so you got locusts and you got a nation, or you got all locusts, or you got locusts in in the past and locusts in the future, and so it's very confusing. But here's the point that we need to understand. Regardless of what camp you may fall in, in terms of what is actually being signified here, and I believe it's actually probably locusts, and that locust is telling a story both past and present, I believe regardless of that, God, this is what you need to know. God is bringing the heat to his people because they have continually disregarded him and continually walked contrary to what he has called them to do. So he's bringing the heat. Now, here's another interesting question about this moment. What exactly do or did his people do to receive the heat that he's bringing? Joel doesn't actually give us a clear picture of this. He doesn't give us a, a clear picture of what sins they've committed. And the reason I believe he doesn't do that is because I believe Joel already expects the reader to know. And we absolutely should know. Because Israel's issues don't necessarily change if you've read a little bit of your Bible. Anybody that's read the Bible know that pretty much the same sins just keep on cropping up or popping up as it relates to Israel. As, and to be honest with you, if you know yourself, and you know that this is probably your story too. You know, most, most of your sins aren't really unique and really aren't different. It's probably like five sins that you just keep doing over and over and over again. Does that make, does it make sense? You know, there's like two idols that you just keep bowing down to that you can't cut loose. And the same thing with Israel, right? It's, 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 it's just a handful of idols that they keep coming back to. And so Joel doesn't really have to even articulate what's going on as it relates to their sin life. He knows that idolatry, is leading them to abandoning God's ways and embracing nonsense. He knows that greed is leading them to the exploitation of the poor and the exploitation of the needy. He knows that the chasing of pleasure is leading them to sexual immorality and drunkenness and other areas of loss of self-control and other patterns of addictive behaviors. He knows that he knows that they are trusting in themselves as God or in their government as a God or in their nation as a God or in their military might or in their military or their political might as a God or in some other nations military might or political power as a God. Joe knows that this is, the, this is what they're doing because this is what we always do. We don't have to explicitly know their sin in order to understand where they are. Neither do we have to understand their sin in order to understand how they got there. This is the human story. This is our story, not just Israel's. So let's explore more of this day, this day of the Lord that God is describing. It is without question a day of terror. You see that in the first eight verse or 10 verses, verses two through 10. He says, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. It is described first as a dark day, Scripture gives us examples where dark, however, is not simply the presence of evil. Oftentimes, it is the presence of righteousness and power and might. You see that here in the text that we're reading. This darkness is described as so great that it overshadows all the natural elements of light. In verse 10, you hear this about this darkness. It says, the earth quakes before them, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw, their shining. All the greatest natural lights in all of creation cannot withstand this darkness because this darkness is greater than than all of the great natural lights. Do you understand that? But this darkness is not evil, this darkness is righteous, this darkness is God, but it's God bringing judgment. We see it in in Egypt, or we see it rather in, in Exodus when God appeared on Mount Sinai. The Bible says that the Lord spoke to all of the assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire and the cloud and thick darkness with a loud voice. And then he gave us what the commandments he wrote on the stones, Moses wrote on the stones and the law was created, but the law was created from a God who spoke from darkness, clouds, lightning, fire, darkness, all qualities of a great fearful God. And here's the same thing in Joel, a great fearful God approaching a people in judgment. In the scripture we just read, We are reminded of God's presence with the children of Israel, or or rather in Deuteronomy, the, the scripture I just highlighted. We're reminded of God's presence with Israel when he created the law. And so out of darkness, he created the law. Now he is approaching in darkness because they violated that law. Does that make sense? This day of terror, however, is not just simply a day of darkness. It is also a day of destruction. Chapter 2, I mean, chapter 2, verse 2, it says that like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Now, the word blackness actually is not, is not the word. It's not the, Greek, it's not the Hebrew word. What happened was many of the interpreters saw the word darkness or saw all of the darkness in verse 1 and said to themselves, Okay, this this word dawn, which is what's here, that doesn't seem to fit what we're reading here. But if you look at the newer translations, you'll see that the word actually comes back. It's not darkness anymore. It's dawn. And here's what's being said. It's saying that God in his darkness is bringing about an army that is so vast, they cover the ground like the light that rises in the day. They spread, light, dawn, spreads upon the mountains, a great and a powerful people. The word is intended to paint a picture of an army that is so vast that when it arrives, it quickly covers the land in the same way a dawn of a new day would. In fact, some scholars see this word as evidence that the attacks are not human. Some scholars see this as evidence that the attacks, in fact, are the locusts because the sun is shining off the array of wings that are covering the land and creating this blinding light as it approaches the city, ready to destroy it. But they are not only vast, they are not only spread out. Verse two says they are greater than anything that has ever been seen and anything that was seen after them. Again, this is one of the, another reason why I believe it's locusts, because that is a playback to Exodus chapter 10, when the eighth plague, if you remember the plague of Exodus, when the locust came, the eighth plague, the Bible says in Exodus 10, the locust came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before nor ever will be again. The same language, the same verbiage, the same words being used to describe what's happening in Joel 2, and what's happening in Exodus chapter 10. Now, the difference here is that in Exodus chapter 10, the locusts were there for the Egyptians. In Joel chapter two, the locusts are there for God's people because God's people are the ones that are wayward and deserving of God's judgment. You know, sometimes sin drives us towards literally being our worst enemies. You know, you see the locusts showing up in, ex- in, in Exodus for the Egyptians because they were the enemy. But now sin has us as the enemy. And so the locusts are coming for us. Have you, seen, have you ever seen a situation in your life where no matter how hard you tried to look for somebody else to be the enemy for your downfall, you come to the conclusion that really the enemy is you? You were there because of you. You're in this situation because of you. Now, there are times where certainly there are adversaries that are outside of us. But how many times can we actually testify? I can. I don't know about anybody else. That when I survey, who is to blame for why I'm here? The enemy is me. And this is the issue with Israel. This locust or this human army brings with it nothing but destruction, laying waste to good land, leaving all of that land dead and desolate, leaving the people battered and bruised. And And this army is determined. It says that they are literally climbing the walls and jumping into windows. And in verse 7, it says, like warriors, they charge like soldiers. They scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons. So the weapons are coming, but they're not impacting them. They're just marching right through the weapons. They're not being stopped. They leap up on the city. They run up the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. They cannot be stopped. They are determined. And so God is bringing dark, destructive, determined judgment on this day. In verse 12 it says, "For the God, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it. I'm sorry, verse 11. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? When God turns his attention, folks, towards us, there is no escaping his wrath. There is no escaping his judgment. There is no escaping his terror. So what on earth do we do? What on earth can we do? Joel tells us in the very next verse, beginning in verse 12, we turn back to God. We turn back to God. And so here you see a day of terror turning to a day of repentance. Verse 12, it says, "'Yet even now,' declares the Lord, "'return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. "'Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster.'" How can Israel make this day of the Lord a day of repentance? First, they make this day of the Lord a day of repentance by acknowledging that God has offered them a way back. God has given them a way back. He says, yet even now, yet even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, with crying. Yet even now, the same God who sounded the alarm of warning in verse 1 was the God who brought the righteous army in verse 11 to carry out his judgment against righteous people. But that same God who sounded the alarm and brought the army is now the God who pleads with us, saying, yet even now, return to me with all your heart. Yes, he has, he has bared down on you. He has brought judgment, Israel. But now he is saying, I brought judgment in order that you might return. No matter how far they are from God, God provides a path back for them. They are so far from God that God has sent a destructive army, locusts or human otherwise, or, or whatever. He has sent a destructive army to destroy everything that they have. That's how far from God they are right now. And yet, he says, come back. But God, we've turned to other guys. Now we trust in our money. Now we trust in our sex. Now we trust even in our own selves more than we trust in you. Yet God says, yet even now, return to God. But God, we've turned to our greed. We've turned to our jealousy. We've turned to our envy. We've turned to our drugs. We've turned to our alcohol. We're ungrateful for all that you've given us. We constantly cry out for more, even when we have. Yet God says, yet even now, return to me. But God, we've turned to our lusts. We've turned to our sex. We've turned to our adultery. We've turned to our pornography. And we've made the pursuit of worldly pleasure more important than a pursuit in a pleasure of, of pursuing pleasure in you. Yet God says, Even now, return to me. God, you've turned your wrath against me. I know that I'm my worst enemy. I know that I am literally in the situation that I'm in right now because of me. And I know I've transgressed your law. I know I've broken your law, and that's why I'm in the situation that I'm in. And so, Lord, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this. Yet even now, God says, return to me. Here's the lesson I hope you're learning as you're reading through this book with me. No matter how far Israel is away from God, they are not too far away to return back to God. And that is the same lesson for us through Christ. In fact, Christ is the proof that we are never too far away. While we were far off, the Bible says, Christ came to earth on our behalf. While we were far off, the scripture tells us, Christ died for us. Even declaring as we were co- collectively and consciously orchestrating his murder, all planning and devising how we might kill him, he was on the cross declaring, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. While we were far off, he was raised for us, and he ascended to the right-hand side of the Father where he now makes constant intercession for those of us who call him Lord. Even when we try to drift from him, he is constantly interceding for us. Through Christ Jesus, God the Father declares to us, yet even now, return to me. So Israel first can make this a day of repentance by first acknowledging that God has offered them a way back. But they also can make this a day of repentance by actually repenting. And that, that helps too. Well, what, 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 what do I mean by that? Well, Joel gives us this kind of repentance that God is looking for. In verse 12, he says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. The rending of garments, tearing the garments apart, which I could demonstrate, but this sweatshirt is really thick. But the rending of garments was oftentimes a demonstration of deep sorrow. In the book of Genesis, we read of a story of a, of a young man named Joseph. And he was beloved by his father, but he was despised by his brothers. They despised him so much that they conspired to kill him. Except one of his brothers intervened and, they, and he said, don't kill him. Let's just throw him in this pit. And He threw him in the pit thinking that uh, when the brothers left, other brothers left, he could come back and get him out of the pit. But when he left, the brothers said, no, nah, we ain't going to keep him in the pit. We're going to sell him. Gonna get something out of this. We don't like the dude, so we'll get something out of him. So let's sell him, and they sold him into slavery. And when the other brother comes back, and he finds out that his brother that he loves, but that he was too cowardly to actually rescue, as he ought, as he ought, is gone. The Bible says that he rents his garments. He tears them because of the sorrow, because of the disappointment, because of the grief. So renting garments can be a good thing, but here Joel is saying that the outward action of renting garments can be empty and void of real meaning, of true meaning. You see, Joel declares in returning to God that it is not just your clothes that God is asking for you to tear, but it is rather your hearts. In other words, repentance calls for the very center of us to be completely and totally uprooted. The core of our decision-making, the core of our will, the core of our attitude, the core of our identity must be turned upside down. The whole man, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually, must turn in a new direction away from the life as we used to live it and towards the life that we are now called to live in Christ. That's repentance, not just outward mourning, but inward grief, inward mourning, inward renting, inward tearing, inward uprooting. Now maybe this resonates with someone in the room or someone watching online maybe this morning. Maybe in the past, you've been content with an outward expression of repentance. Maybe you made a statement. Maybe you took some actions. Maybe you dropped an Instagram post. Maybe you dropped a Facebook post and said, man, it's time for a, time for a change. And then you just kind of, you know, after you said that, just kept doing whatever you was doing. And so maybe you, maybe you identify with this. And maybe you're saying to yourself, man, I'm, man, I just, you know, just made a mockery of God, man, and I'm out here making these big, bold proclamations, but ain't, ain't, living, ain't living about it, ain't being about it. To you, God declares, yet even now, return to me. You see, here in Joel, this is not just a call for one or two to return, though. The nation has strayed from God, and so it is the nation that Joel is calling back. And this is where the second time comes up where we hear the shofar blow. We hear it in verse 17. It says this, verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, and gather the people. You see, this blow is not a blow for a warning. This blow is a blow to call the people back together for a solemn assembly, a time of consecration. Let's set ourselves aside. Let's not just rent our clothes, let's rent our hearts. Let's give dedication back to God. Let's take time and let's cry out to God for mercy. Let's cry out to God to bear our grief. Let's cry out to God to confess our sins. And if you read through the text, you realize that no one is excluded from this. Verse 16, it says, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders. And so we're talking about the old. Gather the children, talking about the young. Even the nursing infants, the very young. Let the bridegroom leave his room. And let the bride leave her chamber. No one is excluded. Children, nursing infants. Yes, we need you too. Come and let's repent. Let's cry out to God together. Those in the midst of their honeymoon celebrations. Where where, where are you? Cabo? No, we need need you back. Come on. Time to plead. Time to cry out. And then he and then he goes even deeper. He says not just not just married couples that are just getting married. Leave your room, bride. Leave your chamber. I don't have to explain that to you guys. They basically said, Hey, this is really, 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 really serious. We need you to stop whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing, and we need you to come and we need you to come together and and, and gather as a group for confession for repentance. Of course, the parallel today wouldn't be a nation as much as it would be the collective church. But pay attention to the oneness that God sees his people with. Corporate sin calls for corporate repentance. A, a collective sin calls for a collective repentance. Even when there's a few people, I'm sure, in that group that's like, well, I didn't, I didn't do anything wrong. Why, why, why am I repenting? You know, oftentimes I hear this kind of sentiment in the church where the call for corporate confession is made, where people will respond with that kind of sentiment. Well, that wasn't me. But to think in those terms is to dismiss the corporate nature by which you have been called. We are, we are one body. And so when one part of the body grieves, we all grieve. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer. When one part of the body triumphs, we all triumph. And when one part of the body falls, we should join in that grief. And we should join in that repentance. And we should join in that confession, calling out to God to have mercy on us through Christ and accept our forgiveness. You can't, you can't lay claim to the triumphs and the victories, but then want to dismiss and distance yourself in the midst of the failures. No, this is our failure collectively. And so we'll call out to God together. And this is what God calls him to do. You see, corporate confession is not necessarily a demonstration of my responsibility in it, and it's not a demonstration of my culpability in it, in the sin. It is an awareness that I am connected with these people. As one people, these are my people. This is my body. And they cry out to God in verse 17, and they say, they say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? They're saying, Lord, we belong to you. So restore us for your sake. I love, I love that. They're not even saying, hey, we're, we're really, really worthy of this. So as we cry out to you, please accept us. They're saying, "God, <laughs> we're your people. We're your people. I mean, this is for you. You don't. You, you. You saved us. You called us. And so, this is about your mercy and your grace and your love. Do it for your own name, even if you don't. Even if you don't do it for me, because I'm worthy for it, worthy of it. Do it for you. Do it for your own name. And so, God does." People cry out in repentance, old and young, priests and laymen, brides and widows. And because God hears the cries of his people, the day of the Lord moves from terror to repentance to restoration. He says in verse 18, the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending to you grain and wine and oil, and you will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. When When God begins restoration, all of creation is brought into that restoration because all of creation was involved in the judgment. All the creation was involved in the terror. The grain, the wine, the oil were all impacted because of Israel's sin. So now in the restoration, the grain, the wine, and the oil are being restored. And not only does God promise restoration, but he promises future protection. He says the northern threat whether that be locusts flying in from the north or whether that be other soldiers and other nations coming from the north. He says, I will stop them. I will thwart them. Notice this restoration ends up creating a song that is addressed to all of creation in verse 21. Starting with the land, it says, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beast of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The land is flourishing. The land is restored. The animals are flourishing. The animals are restored. And the people are flourishing. The people are restored. Restoration comes to all when his people... Turn back to him. That is his plan. And this plan is not just pointing to a time in Joel's day, but this plan is pointing to the future ahead. This plan includes us. This plan includes you. God is bringing about a restoration for a repentant people. He's bringing about a restoration of all things that will lead to a full restoration of all the creation, that will lead to a full restoration of all the land, that will lead to a full restoration of all the animals, and that will lead to a full restoration of all people. And this repentant people will no longer know suffering. They will no longer know sin. They will no longer know shame. In fact, that's what God tells us in verse 26. He says, and my people never again will be put to shame. You shall have plenty. You shall eat plenty. You shall be satisfied. You shall praise the name of the Lord your God, and you will never be put to shame again. He says it twice for emphasis. Verse 27 again, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else in my people shall never again be put to shame. You see, brothers and sisters, this future is not just for a group of people who are connected to God through some ethnicity as we see Israel in Joel chapter 2, but this promise is for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. And how do I know that? To wrap up, look at verse 28. It says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, they shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and the female service in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. There it is again, the day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So the Lord in his process of restoration promises to do something amazing. He's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Old and young, he's going to pour it out. Male and female, he's going to pour it out. Slave and free, he's going to pour it out. In other words, class is not going to get in the way. Gender is not going to get in the way. Age is not going to get in the way. He's going to pour out his spirit on everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. That promise of salvation, that promise of restoration is not confined to a group of people. No, that promise will extend to every single one of us who call upon the name of the Lord. In fact, this promise is the promise that we hear read in Acts chapter 2 when on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit falls and everybody's looking around like, what's happening? Peter stands up and he begins to preach a sermon. And the sermon that he preaches, he speaks this passage word for word. And he says that today this passage is being fulfilled. And then to close it up, he says this in Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Here's what Peter's doing. He's tying that promise to Jesus. He's saying, "You want to know the restoration of all things? Look to Jesus. You want to see the re- you want to enjoy the restoration of the land and the animals and even yourself? Look to Jesus. You want to see God's wrath turned away as a repentant people turn their hearts towards him? Look to Jesus. You want to see God's enemies once and for all defeated?" for all of time and all of eternity, look to Jesus. You wanna receive the very spirit of God into your life in order to give you power to turn from sin, in order to give you power to be comforted when you are in need of comfort, look to Jesus. Peter ties all the promises of God, all the promise that he will rebuild and restore, everything, he ties it back to Jesus. And he says, the one that you crucified, that's what a promise is connected to. The one that was raised from the grave, that's where the promise is connected to. And then they say, well, brother, what what, what do we need to do? What, what, What should we do? He says, repent. Repent. Yet even now, return to God. Repent. And you shall receive the gift of God through Christ Jesus. Are you tracking with that? And so how do I get in line for the restoration that God is doing? Repent. Yet, even now, return to God, return to Christ, embrace Him as Lord, embrace Him as Savior, and you too will be a part of the people that God is bringing and restoring to Himself. Let's pray.